Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 162, The Apple Question. Hi, Emil. Welcome to 2020. It is good to be back. Hopefully, all of you are having a good start to the new year. And if you celebrate the holidays, hopefully you had a break, maybe a week or two off from all of the craziness and the hectic schedules. I'm not a fan of predictions. And so that makes this time of year kind of like a minefield when surfing the web. There are a lot of prediction posts. People saying, well, what's going to happen in 2020? This year especially, it was pretty crazy because of the 2010s ending. And so we had decade recaps, what to expect in the next decade. It was a little bit too much. (laughs) In today's episode, we're not going to talk about predictions. We're going to focus on questions. And when it comes to Apple, I think there is one overarching question that now faces the company. This isn't just about 2020. It may not even be about the next decade. But it's a question that covers Apple's largest challenge and opportunity. With that, we're going to jump right in. And I want to talk a little bit about predictions. Predictions are nothing more than attempts at manufacturing clarity for what is inherently a sea of unknown. With these New Year predictions, two things need to happen. The person issuing the prediction needs to come up with what may happen. Okay, makes sense. But the predicted event has to occur within an arbitrary time period. The probability of finding value in such an exercise is low. Recently, I've seen some people, they try to say, well, the prediction itself is not what's valuable. Instead, predictions kind of make you think about different scenarios, and there's value in doing that. I think that's a joke. Unfortunately, predictions have been weaponized to a degree. Now they're used for clicks, page views, retweets, likes on social media. Instead of coming up with predictions for Apple at the start of a new year, there is value found embracing the unknown and looking at questions facing the company. This is an annual thing. This is a tradition that I've done with Above Avalon. So going back to starting for questions in 2015, each year I have come up with my list of questions for Apple in the new year. The irony you found with questions is that asking the right ones is equivalent to coming up with a surfboard for successfully catching waves in the sea of unknown. It doesn't seem to make sense. How can questions give you clarity? I think one of the factors is that it doesn't try to mask the unknown. One issue with predictions very often is when you make a prediction, and then you go analyze a certain market or industry, your analysis of that industry probably will be skewed in a way to try to match your prediction, to almost verify the prediction. But by asking questions, you can almost remain more true to yourself. I think that's a good lead into my set of questions for Apple in 2020. Now, close listeners and readers will see that my approach this year is a little bit different than previous years. In the past, I would come up 
with a long list of questions that I had for Apple. And what I would then do is go through and in a way curate the list. Very often I could combine questions. I can maybe find some duplication. And and in a way I can reduce the number of questions to a little bit more of a manageable total. There were still a lot there. (laughs) There were still a lot of questions even after that. This year... I looked at it more from the perspective of what is the source material for questions. And so, for example, the first topic we're going to talk about is the iPhone. I can probably dedicate an entire episode to going over all of the various questions that now face Apple when it comes to the iPhone. We're not going to do that, (laughs) but instead I'm going to frame this as, well, here is what's taking place when it comes to the iPhone. You can see how there are questions found with that changing dynamic or that reality. Once we go over all the source material, then that's where I think there's a couple of very interesting observations that become apparent. And Apple is in a very different situation now than it was in previous years when we went over different sets of questions. I'll get to that in a couple minutes. So again, this is source material for Apple questions in 2020. There are two groups here, growth initiatives and asset-based optimization. So we'll begin with growth initiatives. The first one, the iPhone business. The narrative facing the iPhone business has been off the mark for years. Skepticism and cynicism has continued to mask what has been a resilient business. Yes, unit sales are down. But we don't have something like a BlackBerry 2.0, where you have sales peak and then gradually decline all the way down to essentially zero. That's not what's happening with the iPhone. Now there is too much talk of 5G kicking off some kind of mega upgrade iPhone cycle. I don't buy into that narrative. By always focusing on, well, what can kick off this mega upgrade cycle? What ends up happening is the person ignores what is ultimately taking place with the iPhone. The business is maturing. This presents a set of challenges that will require a fine-tuning of strategy. We're talking about changes to the device lineup, release schedule, pricing, feature set. You go so far as to say naming. You can look at all of the various questions that are found with that. The next topic, paid content distribution. 2019 was a very busy year for Apple's content distribution arm. It is fair to say that Apple revamped its distribution arm. Well, now all eyes are on whether or not Apple will bundle It's new paid content services. We have Apple Music, Apple TV Plus, Apple Arcade, and a few select countries, Apple News Plus. The intriguing thing with bundling is that it's a tool that Apple has at its disposal to support a weaker service, while at the same time increasing the stickiness found with the individual services that make up that bundle. A prime example that I think a lot of people are familiar with would be the big cable bundle. The bundle would prop up the weaker channels 
while at the same time making it difficult to move away because it would mean that you're losing access to your favorite channels. That doesn't mean that it's going to last forever. (laughs) We could see the marketplace right now. There is an evolution going on. There is a change in how we want to consume content. The next topic, wearables. Apple's wearables business is a runaway train with the company selling approximately 65 million wearable devices in fiscal year 2019. For that number, I'm including Apple Watch, wireless AirPods, and a portion of Beats headphones. Based on my Apple Watch install base estimate, just 7% of iPhone users own an Apple Watch. Similar ownership percentages are found with wireless AirPods, despite the product having been in the market for less time. The question isn't if Apple wearables momentum will continue, but instead how fast will adoption grow? The next topic is margins. Apple follows a revenue and gross margin optimization pricing strategy. We recently talked about this in episode 160, Let's Talk Apple Tax. By following the strategy, Apple's product's gross margin percentage has declined by 10% over the past two years. Meanwhile, product's gross margin on an absolute dollar basis has declined by only 2%. What does that tell us? Apple is willing to let product's gross margin percentages decline if it results in stronger customer demand for those products. And so Apple is doing that via lower product prices and running with higher costs of goods sold relative to revenue. The attention now is shifting to determining the level at which Apple product pricing becomes too low in order to maximize gross profit dollars. So there is such a thing that if you're cutting pricing and you're moving more merchandise, you're selling more gadgets, more products, there may come a point where you're not maximizing gross profit on an absolute dollar basis. You're not making it up by selling more units. That's not to say that Apple's necessarily at that level, but I think it's something that would need to be monitored in 2020. The next topic, R&D. There's a lot in this one, so I'm going to just really sum it up pretty quickly. There have been two general themes found with Apple's largest R&D initiatives. That is Project Titan, Transportation, and Apple's efforts related to developing a pair of augmented reality glasses. The two themes are, one, continued progress, and two, extended timelines. So there is evidence for both Titan and AR glasses, augmented reality glasses, that show Apple is making progress here. Apple is moving forward. Yet at the same time, target dates, or at least rumored target dates that were leaked, Apple seems to be blowing past those. We can't take that and say, well, Apple is running late. Apple's going to miss the party. That's, I think, a major jump there. Instead, I think this is going to present some new challenges for Apple in terms of, well, what do you do? while you're waiting for these huge new R&D initiatives to materialize. Now, it's very well possible that some of the technology, some of the initiatives that are part of those two projects, well, maybe they will be useful for something else. 
And so it, there's a lot that's going on. There's a lot of moving parts. And that's why I kind of just put it all in one big R&D bucket. We now move to the source material for a slightly different set of questions. And I group this under asset base optimization. The first one has to actually do with leadership. With Jeff Williams officially serving as the link between Apple's design team and the rest of Tim Cook's inner circle, which Jeff Williams is part of, it'll be interesting to see if Apple makes any refinements to its leadership structure. So that's a little bit of a different way of thinking about the topic versus just asking, will there be turnover in Apple's senior ranks? The next topic, China. The boogeyman known as U.S.-China trade has been put to bed for now with rhetoric having been dialed back in a very big way, attention will shift to the various decisions Apple still has to make regarding its long-term approach to China. Apple can continue to rely heavily on China for its supply chain and manufacturing apparatus. Apple can accelerate a diversification strategy away from China. Or Apple can follow more of a status quo approach that recognizes the benefits and weaknesses of being so dependent on one country. We then turn to CapEx. In fiscal year 2019, Apple reported just $7.6 billion of CapEx, that is capital expenditures. This is a significant drop from the $16.7 billion of CapEx in fiscal year 2018. The most likely reason for the decline in CapEx was a decline in tooling and manufacturing machinery. Apple also slowed spending on corporate facilities. We talked about this issue in detail in episode 143, Look at the CapEx. So I'll include a link in the show notes, especially if you want more information on CapEx in general. One thing that's important to point out is that Apple stopped providing CapEx guidance for fiscal year 2020. So I think this entire CapEx topic now has a greater level of intrigue as to what it means about Apple's near-term product pipeline. The last topic is capital return. Apple shares were up 89% in 2019, exceeding the S&P 500's 31% gain. The most recent episode, 161, Apple's spectacular year on Wall Street, was dedicated to this topic. For the first time with Tim Cook as CEO, Apple shares now trade at a premium to the overall market when looking at forward price-to-earnings multiples. This has led some financial writers to call for Apple to slow the pace of buyback and instead push a larger increase in the quarterly cash dividend. In the event that Apple's market value, so that's determined by the market participants, exceeds intrinsic value, so that is an estimate from Apple management, it's not clear how Apple would remove tens of billions of dollars of excess cash still on the balance sheet. I don't think this is the right time to really go into detail about the differences between market value, intrinsic value, and how that relates to share buyback. I'll talk a little bit more about this at the very end of the episode because I actually recently published an above Avalon report on share buyback, and in particular Apple's buyback program. For our discussion in this episode, We could just simply say, if buyback becomes less attractive, how is Apple going to remove all of the excess cash on the balance sheet? In addition, we have to consider this is a company that's kicking off nearly $60 billion of free cash flow per year. 
there aren't exactly a lot of options to getting that cash off the balance sheet. Special dividends aren't great from a tax perspective. While there are limitations found with simply funneling all of the excess cash into quarterly cash dividends. That takes us to the end of my source material for Apple questions in 2020. Before we go any further, there's one thing that I want to mention, and and this is something that has happened, I think, every year in the past, and it's already started this year. I know that that list of questions does not include every possible topic related to Apple. For example, we didn't talk about iPad, the Mac, smart homes, the App Store, regulatory concerns. The list goes on. Certain financial items that I didn't specifically talk about. When it came to coming up with the final list of questions, curation played a very big role. And so using the example of the App Store, I certainly could have come up with maybe a dozen or two dozen questions that related to the App Store. We could talk about revenue share changes, regulatory concerns, revenue growth, overall revenue growth for the App Store. But when going through a lot of those questions, the thing that really jumped out at me was Apple's content distribution arm. It was a major part of 2019, and I think there are still a lot of unanswered questions regarding Apple's revamped content distribution arm. Accordingly, I wouldn't read into the fact that a certain topic didn't make the final cut, and so that must mean A, B, and C. That's not the case. If there is a topic that you're still surprised that I didn't mention, certainly reach out, let me know. There's nothing wrong with that. This brings us to the midpoint of the discussion. As I mentioned briefly at the beginning of the episode, I approached this year's questions in a slightly different way. Once I had that final list of source material, topics that I think represent unknown for Apple in 2020, I took a closer look at each one. And I had an observation. When looking at Apple, the product categories that have served as the primary engines for Apple's new user growth are quickly maturing, while new product categories have been more ARPU drivers. That stands for average revenue per user. There are more than 500 million people who own just one Apple product, an iPhone. This group represents a prime target for Apple when selling additional tools. Apple is ending one growth phase and is about to enter into a new one. Over at AboveAvalon.com, in this week's article titled The Big Question Now Facing Apple, the one exhibit that I included showed the growth trajectory for the number of Apple users, also referred to as Apple's install base, over the past 10 years. Based on my estimates, the Apple install base grew from approximately 90 million people at the end of 2009 to a little more than a billion people at the end of 2019. The thing is, when looking at the growth trajectory, there's been a major change. Apple's new user growth has slowed dramatically. Thanks primarily to the iPhone, Apple saw spectacular new user growth in the range of 25 to 60% in the early to mid-2010s. More recently, user growth has been trending 
in the mid-single digit range. This also relates to my previous comment that new product categories have been more about ARPU drivers. We can look at something like Apple Watch or wireless AirPods as examples. Reaching a billion users is quite the accomplishment for Apple, considering how the company doesn't give away its products for free. It's one thing to reach a billion users with a free service. However, to get a billion people to pay directly for a service or tool is an entirely different thing. When thinking about Apple's future, especially set within this dynamic, the big question facing the company isn't about how it will sell additional tools to its existing user base. We already have a pretty good view of that. Instead, the major unknown facing Apple is found with management's ability to continue expanding its install base. This brings us to one overarching question that covers Apple's largest challenge and opportunity. This is the question that I'm referring to in the title of today's episode. How will Apple find its next billion users? It may be tempting to classify Apple's first billion users as some kind of easy growth or the low-hanging fruit. The thing is, there's nothing easy about building an ecosystem that has a billion paying users. In reality, those billion users primarily came from the premium segments of the various industries that Apple competes in. This means that to find the next billion users, Apple's going to need some strategy adjustments. The major building blocks for Apple's plan to find its next billion users are already in place. Apple will come up with tools capable of making technology more personal. That is a mission Apple has been on for decades. This pursuit will involve new user interfaces and inputs that allow people to get more out of technology without having technology take over people's lives. Taking a look at the geographical makeup of Apple's current install base, there are still plenty of new users in developed markets that Apple can target. However, when looking at emerging markets, I think it's a completely different story. For example, Indonesia, Brazil, the Philippines, and Vietnam have a total population that is twice that of the United States. There are more people in China and India, 2.6 billion, than the next 20 most populated countries combined. It may be easy or maybe even tempting to think that Apple can just cut product pricing in order to grab its next billion users. However, the situation ends up being more complicated. When thinking about emerging markets, including China and India, socioeconomic trends will contribute to tens of millions of people moving into Apple's addressable market each year. In addition, relying on the gray market for allowing gently used Apple products to flow to lower price segments is a more effective strategy for Apple. Not only does the gray market reduce the need for Apple to come up with low-priced products lacking in features, but Apple can also benefit from continued product focus, and that's important when thinking of the supply chain and Apple's manufacturing apparatus. We could look at China and India in particular. While the two countries are very different from each other, and you can't take one strategy and apply it to the other country, in each, you have a situation where Apple has a footing, a pretty firm footing, 
in the premium end of the market. The difference is that in China, the premium end of the market is much more substantial than what we see in India. However, going out over, let's say, the next decade, I think you're going to see that premium segment get larger. You're going to have customers who may be currently in something like the mid-tier range move into that premium market. From Apple's perspective, I don't think that necessarily means that you have to go down market. You have to cut pricing as fast as you can in order to grab users. Instead, your focus can be on building out your infrastructure, especially with the long term in mind. That way you can support more people moving into your addressable market. In the near term, the gray market can be an effective way of getting your products to those lower segments. You're still able to maintain your aspirational branding. And more importantly, you're able to maintain the experiences found with your products. You're not forced to come out with a quote-unquote cheap version of one of your products. Now, in some situations, customers may want brand new flagship products. They don't want gently used products that are already three or four years old. And I think that will come into play. The gray market is not the only solution here, or it can't be the only solution. However, when looking at something like the iPhone gray market and how effective it's become, I think there are ways of bringing that into other product categories. For example, like Apple Watch. As for some of the granular initiatives that stand to promote continued growth in Apple's install base, I came up with four. There's more, but for now, we'll go over four. The first, a truly independent Apple Watch. This is something that I talk about from time to time, probably since 2015 or even 2014 when Apple unveiled Apple Watch. Advancements such as a truly independent Apple Watch that doesn't require another Apple device to activate and use will expand the device's addressable market by nearly four times overnight. There's certainly a debate when it comes to this idea of there being a truly independent Apple Watch. Some people are convinced there is no way Apple is going to do this because they want to sell iPhones. I don't think that's the case. The next item, continuing to run forward with wearables. New product categories that allow Apple to break down the barriers between users and technology will allow the company to target a wider audience. When thinking about the motivation behind new wearable form factors such as glasses, it's all about making technology even more personal than what is possible with Apple Watch and wireless AirPods. This also relates to our first item when we talk about a truly independent Apple Watch. In my view, there is quite a bit more value found with using the Apple Watch to support something like Apple Glasses than just using an Apple Watch as some kind of chain for getting people to continue buying iPhones. The third item, improving device longevity. By giving Apple devices longer lifespans via more durable hardware and additional years of software updates, devices will be able to have more owners over time. This will have a direct benefit on the gray market for Apple devices because you're going to have more devices recirculated and eventually able to reach customers in lower price segments. The fourth item, expanding device repair and support networks. 
Apple's current retail store footprint is not capable of handling the additional product servicing and support associated with having another billion users in its ecosystem. A good argument can be made that the current retail store footprint is having a very difficult time handling Apple's current billion users. This is especially true in developing markets. By building out a device repair and support network to include authorized third parties, Apple will go a long way in ensuring the next billion users have access to many of the same experiences that are valued by Apple's current users. The path to 2 billion users won't be easy for Apple. The trajectory may very well end up looking quite different than the path to a billion users. However, there is nothing found with Apple's long-standing mission to create products that could change people's lives that limits its reach to a billion people. For an episode dedicated to asking a lot of questions, it's interesting how we end up discovering and learning so much about Apple. A great example of that is focusing on this new overarching question, how will Apple find its next billion users? In many ways, that one question is so effective at shining a light on today's Apple, on the various motivations and drivers guiding Apple management. There is more value found in asking questions than there is in making predictions. That's going to do it for today's episode. One quick programming alert. As I briefly mentioned a few minutes ago, I recently published a new Above Avalon report on Share Buyback. It's called Share Buyback 101, an Examination of Apple's Share Repurchase Strategy. This report is a complete overview of Apple's Share Buyback program. It also took an examination into some of the technical details and fundamentals behind share repurchases. I also went over the various reasons companies buy back shares, whether or not buybacks create value, how to judge a buyback's effectiveness, and Apple's long-term objectives found with buying back shares. The report was about 4,400 words, so there's a lot there. I will include a link to the report in the show notes. Above Avalon reports are part of Above Avalon membership. And so what that means is that Above Avalon members have exclusive access to the reports at no additional cost. If you enjoy the analysis and perspective found in these podcast episodes and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com, I think you would enjoy and will see quite a bit of value from becoming an Above Avalon member. While membership includes access to Above Avalon reports, the cornerstone is access to my daily email all about Apple. Each email is about 2,000 words and goes over everything that I think is of interest to Apple. So I will talk about Apple business and strategy analysis, my perspective and observations on current news and Apple competitors, my Apple financial estimates, and full coverage of Apple earnings, product events, and keynotes. Since Apple doesn't operate in a vacuum, even though all of the updates are focused on Apple, I end up talking about a number of different companies that I think are of interest to Apple. So that's something that I did want to point out. For more information on membership and to become an Above Avalon member, just head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. 
In addition to receiving the daily updates throughout the week, Above Avalon members have access to reports, my Apple earnings model. So this model is fully functional. It's an Excel file that also works in numbers. Members have access to the archive, so you can go back and read previously sent daily updates and reports. And there is a form, so you can chat with other Above Avalon members. When on AboveAvalon.com, if you then go to the daily updates page, that's going to show you all of the headlines for each daily update. So I think that's going to give you a pretty good look at the wide range of topics that I cover in the daily updates. I am proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by membership. So if you are a current Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you are planning or thinking about becoming an Above Avalon member, thank you in advance. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Bye.